Over the years, I have come to rely on Cody not only as a brilliant writer, but as somebody who is focused on doing right by the American people every single day. From the U.S. Embassy in Dublin, this is The Diplomatic Pouch. I'm Dermot Keane from the Public Affairs Office. And I'm John B. Murphy. Welcome back. On this episode of the podcast, we are interviewing speechwriter Cody Keenan. Cody is an American political advisor and speechwriter who served as the director of speechwriting for President Barack Obama. From Tucson to Newtown to Charleston, Keenan helped President Obama fill his role as consoler-in-chief. Described as the Springsteen of Obama's White House, Cody is a proud Irish-American from Chicago with roots in Dublin and Cork. He helped President Obama craft remarks on every topic for every audience, from tiny backyards in Iowa to the biggest stadiums in the US and around the world, from sermons on the National Mall to the State of the Union Address. A lot there. Uh, we've recorded. We've just recorded the interview. Really looking forward to playing it. We're going to play it quite shortly. But John, from 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 speaking with Cody, who's a very sound guy. First of all, that's one thing that I took away from that. What did you take take away from speaking with Cody? Well, I thought it was funny and fascinating that he was inspired to go into politics partly from watching the West Wing show. Yeah. Um, because when I think of presidential speech writers, I always think of Sam Seaborn and Toby Ziegler uh, from uh, from that show. Um, so it was interesting that he actually took in some inspiration from that. I also thought uh, he, he describes to us about a camping trip that he took. Yeah, in the, one the, time. The, the trip on the, the Irish uh, trip of a lifetime, really, it sounded like when he went to the west coast of Ireland and, and camped along the west coast. And himself and a friend scrimped and saved to get over here. Yeah. And then uh, no more than a few years later, he was coming here on, on board Air Force One. Yep, yep. So many stories in this episode of the podcast. Here it is. Here's Cody Keane in, in conversation on The Diplomatic Pouch. We might start at the beginning, Cody. Um, can you tell us about your Irish roots and your upbringing in Illinois and Connecticut? Sure. Um, uh, I obviously inherited the surname Keenan. My, um, my understanding of our Irish heritage has evolved quite a bit over the years, I think, like most Americans. So, you know, Chicago has a, a greater number of... Uh, Americans who claim Irish ancestry. The census actually tweeted this out recently, an, an infographic. That, so Chicago is the greatest number. I don't know about percentage, but um, you know, growing up, uh, our parents, my parents and my sister, told us about it. Um, you know, the the local Catholic church, Saint Francis, always had a huge Saint Patrick's celebration with step dancers, and Dad would make corned beef and cabbage, and that was really just the extent of it. Um, when I graduated college and moved to Washington my, to look for a job, my first boss ended up being Ted Kennedy, um, the youngest of the Kennedy brothers. And that's when I actually first started to appreciate it. Um, both the, the incredible collection of artifacts he had in his own personal office, which was like a museum and his own connections. Um, that's when I actually started to study a little bit and care. And uh, I never visited Ireland as a kid. My, my first trip was when I was 24. My best friend and I went on our uh, August vacations over to Ireland and we were pretty broke. Um, you know, politics doesn't pay much if you're a young staffer. And so we, we flew Aer Lingus over to Shannon. We rented the cheapest possible car. I think it was an Opel Corsa. 
and uh, we we took our um, camping equipment and we camped illegally for a week uh, wherever we could along the uh, west coast of Ireland, whether it was in town parks or people's farms or wherever. Um, I remember one particular morning, you know, we woke up from somebody. I mean, it was it was like out of a movie. Uh, this this kindly old farmer was knocking on our tents with his walking stick and said uh there'd been a really bad storm the night before while we were sleeping and he said are you mad and we were like no we're really sorry we're really sorry he was like it's okay i just want to make sure you're okay but i have to bring down my cows now and you know we get out of the tent and look and there are like a hundred cows coming our way um so because we had we had to save up our money for pints you know of course um but (laughs) but it everything people had told us about Ireland was true. People were kind and generous. One night we even got, we met people in a bar and we got to, they let us crash at their house and take a shower, which was much needed. And we just had a blast and we managed to do an entire week for like, I think including airfare less than a thousand dollars each. And it was wonderful. And it, it just, it really kind of lit this fire, you know, that I, I, I need to go back. I didn't make a return trip until uh, 2011 on Air Force One with <laughs> the first Black President of the United States. And I remember thinking, you know, uh, I don't even know what my ancestors would say. First of all, they came over before there were airplanes. So um, I should back up. I, what we have traced is uh, both both my parents. Um, on my father's side, Patrick Keenan, and on my mother's side, John McThomas. Uh, and they both came over seven generations ago, uh, in the mid 1700s. So it, it actually turns out it's a real stretch, um, to call myself Irish if, if we've been here that long and it's that diluted. Um, but still something, there's something about Ireland that makes it stick with you. Uh, but, but the thought of, you know, my own ancestors in the 1700s, uh, seeing their great, 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 great grandson, come back over on an airplane would be pretty cool. And I was the first, I'm the first Keenan ever to return. Um, my parents never went, my grandparents never went. I find it very hard to believe that my great grandparents ever went over or anyone before that. So, you know, that's one of the things about ancestry, right? It's really just the stories we tell ourselves. Um, so it, I've always felt a bit sheepish that we came over seven generations ago and, uh, and I, I hype my heritage this much. But um, it's it's this it's the name you get, and there are there are qualities to Ireland that make it such a wonderful place that you want to be a part of. You know? Yeah, it's interesting. You can uh, you know, even though you're talking about the the, the um, gap in generations, you, you can still sense the connection um, that you have with with Ireland. Um, so it doesn't really matter how long ago it is that your parents. Um, left or your, your relations left. Um, can you, just before we get on to President Obama, can you tell me a little bit about working for Ted Kennedy? Yeah, it was extraordinary. Uh, you know, when I graduated and moved to Washington, I didn't know how hard it would be to find a job in politics. Uh, it's a real challenge that they don't equip you for in college. And uh, it took a, a few months of uh, unanswered resumes and botched interviews until I finally uh, landed an, in, an unpaid internship in his mailroom. Um, what a stroke of luck to work for somebody like that, who, you know, not only cared about what I cared about and was passionate about it and has made real tangible differences in the life of this country, but he was a master legislator. I mean, I think you'll still find 
Republicans who say, yeah, he was, he was the best at it, uh, that there was. And um, to watch him work and to watch his staff who, you know, was about a hundred strong between DC and Boston and just the most experienced people on the Hill was magical. Um, but I think more importantly, what it taught me about politics was what it's really all about. You know, I, I came, my college years when I was really becoming politically aware and active uh, coincided with the first three years of the TV show, The West Wing, which makes politics look glamorous and fun and sexy and cool. And, you know, people mock that all the time. They're like, well, you know, real life isn't like The West Wing. Well, yeah, no kidding. You know, like going into a pub isn't like Cheers either. I, I, you can tell the difference between television and real life, but it's still inspiring. Um, and it's true that real life isn't anything like it. So working in that mailroom and opening letters and routing them to where they needed to go, you know, you're, you're reading all of these stories that perfect strangers are sending in from across Massachusetts and across America asking a senator for help. And, you know, they, they take the risk of kind of laying their, you know, their private pains and hopes across this page, hoping that somebody on the other side will read it. Um, and that's really what these letters are. They're, they're an act of hope that somebody will see this and care about what they're going through and do something about it. And that's something that really always stuck with me um, through the White House too. You know, President Obama would read 10 letters a day um, from, the, from Americans and we would read those letters too. And we'd often work them into speeches and they just, it gave us a better, um, you know, barometer of what people were feeling in the country and, and what might actually make their lives a little better than you know, the, the day-to-day Washington BS. And how then did you become involved with the Obama campaign? Uh, it was through the Kennedys. Um, a woman named Stephanie Cutter uh, were, was Ted Kennedy's communications director for a while. And she introduced me to John Favreau, who was Obama's only speechwriter at the time. Um, the campaign had just started. And, you know, in the Senate, you might write a speech or two a week. Um, in on a presidential campaign, you're suddenly writing four a day on every topic under the sun. So he was drowning and needed help. Um, she connected us. She said, you two would hit it off. And we did. And John hired me as his intern in early 2007. Uh, and I was just stubborn enough to stay in that job ever since. Can you tell us a bit about um, when you became the White House chief speechwriter, you took over from, from Jean Favreau? First of all, can you maybe tell us a bit about uh, the art of crafting a good speech, and, and especially for someone like Barack Obama, who is, is quite a known, famous orator? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> to write for President Obama is a wonderful struggle. Um, it's, it's an impossible challenge to get him a draft that you think we'll be up to his standards and we twist ourselves in knots trying to do that. But the wonderful part is he'll take it and he'll work on it. Um, he's one of those rare principals who is a writer and he'll dive into a speech, he'll make edits, and then he'll even take the time to explain to you why he made those edits. Um, and writing with him was always a true collaboration, um, which, which made it a lot easier. There are plenty of politicians who will just read what they're handed or not care just or just say, you know, this isn't what I want, do it again. But to actually work with a someone in a true collaborative relationship is a gift. Um, but hard, you know, I mean, he he's got, he views a speech as a way to make an argument. Um, you've got this captive audience in front of you. And that's a really special, powerful thing. 
So he would take time with his, with the craft and he would place care in his words. Um, every word mattered and every sentence should flow into the next. And uh, it, it was just, it was always kind of, I just left him in, in December uh, after almost 14 years. And uh, it was just an incredible honor uh, to be able to do that on a daily basis for so long. Well, what do you think made you guys such a great pair, uh, Cody, uh, yourself and Obama? You know, I, <laughs> I still don't know if I know the answer to that. Um, I think we just understood each other. And, and more importantly, I, you know, I knew what he wanted to say. Uh, and even more importantly, why he wanted to say it. And that's something that takes time. You know, a, a true speechwriter relationship can take a while to develop. Um, you know, for How me at first, for me at first, it was just mimicry. You know, I, I would, I would kind of mimic what I thought he sounded like. And, uh, and this is way back in 07 and 08, but you really have to sit down with the person on a regular basis, uh, the person for whom you're writing and get to know that person and understand why he or she wants to say what they want to say. And eventually, you know, it's kind of like living in a foreign country. Um, I lived in Spain for a while in college. And the first time you dream in that language, you wake up with a start and you're like, whoa, it's sort of like that with speech writing. You know, the first time you uh, really find yourself kind of channeling that person, it's, it's like I've made a big breakthrough here. The American instinct that led these young men and women to pick up the torch and cross this bridge, that's the same instinct that moved patriots to choose revolution over tyranny. It's the same instinct that drew immigrants from across oceans and the Rio Grande. The same instinct that led women to reach for the ballot, workers to organize against an unjust status quo. The same instinct that led us to plant a flag at Iwo Jima and on the surface of the moon. It's the idea held by generations of citizens who believe that America is a constant work in progress. Before you joined the, the campaign team, did you do a lot of research into him? Did you watch a lot of videos? How do you sort of get into his voice, if you know what I mean? I did, yeah. I when I so I I drove from um, I was in graduate school at Harvard and I drove from Boston to Chicago uh, and I listened to both of his books on tape to try to get his voice down. And you know, you take what's in those books too as kind of the text of the person for whom you're writing. That's where you get a bunch of great stories and their worldview. And I was I was so hyped up the night before I started on the campaign in Chicago that I just kind of stayed up all night watching YouTubes of him giving speeches to figure out his tics, his mannerisms. Um, and even that's not enough. I mean, it, it, it just really takes a long time. I'd say for me, it took two or three years um, before I felt like I really had him down. And then, you know, by by the time I was his chief speechwriter in the second term, uh, I just didn't want to leave. So he was just kind of stuck with me at that point. A well-known phrase in, in politics, uh, but especially in Irish politics, is that you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. How different was it, the contrast between writing speeches for the campaign and then being in office? Oh, campaigns are always more fun um, for two reasons. One, because they're aspirational. You know, certainly the first go-around. Uh, you know, you kind of set the vision for the future. Here's what I want to do. Here's where I want to take this country. This is why I want you to come along. Um, and also because you have a foil, you know, every good story needs needs a, a villain to of sorts. Um, you know, we didn't actually view people that way, but 
you know, in, in 2008, we had John McCain as a foil. In 2012, we had Mitt Romney as a foil. And, and any speech, like any good piece of writing, is better if it has a foil. Now, when you're in office, uh, you can be aspirational, but you're in charge now. You know, people want to know what you're going to do right now. So uh, the, the, we, never, we never let go of hope. But uh, like you said, you enter office with 800,000 people losing their jobs every month. People want to know pretty quickly what you're going to do right now. And everything's your fault, whether it's a hole spewing oil in the Gulf of Mexico or, you know, uh, some random bureaucrat did something stupid. It doesn't matter. It's all on you. Now, reaction to last night's memorial service and the president's remarks. We begin with a report from NewsHour correspondent Tom Bearden, who was at the Tucson event and spoke with members of the community afterward. Dennis Palmer was having trouble with his emotions, too, particularly when the president talked about nine-year-old Christina Taylor Green, one of the people who died in the burst of gunfire on Saturday. In Christina, we see all of our children so curious, so trusting, so energetic, so full of magic, so deserving of our love, and so deserving of our good example. If this tragedy prompts reflection and debate, as it should, let's make sure it's worthy of those we have lost. What happened with Tucson, well, I'll talk about the, the writing of the speech. I mean, this was, you know, when you enter the White House, you, um, as a speechwriter, you, you, you have all these big ambitious dreams of speeches, right? The, the Kennedy's moonshot and, uh, you know, what if we do a Mars shot or whatever, ending wars, you know, conquering a broken economy. Um, you don't think about tragedy quite as often, but so that was, that was one of the, that was the first of many high profile mass shootings we had to write eulogy for. Um, so typically John Faber would have done that one, uh, but it, it fell two weeks after, uh, or two weeks before the 2011 State of the Union address, which he was busy on. So he asked me if I could handle it. Um, and, you know, it was tough. Uh, I think that was that was maybe one of the first speeches where I, I really felt like I got this. Um, uh, but you, you feel it, that when it's going to be a high-profile moment. And I, I think, you know, we only had a couple days um, between the shooting and the eulogy to, to really put something together. Um, and the only reason anybody found out I was the writer on it was we were flying back on Air Force One from Tucson uh, really late at night. I think it was past midnight. Uh, when we landed in DC, it was like two in the morning. And Robert Gibbs, the press secretary, went back to the press cabin just to brief the press and answer some questions because it's a long flight. And I think one of them asked, you know, who wrote the speech and Gibbs actually answered the question uh, and spelled my name for them, which was which was a, an interesting addition. Um, I didn't know this uh, until I think the next morning. Um, we went back to DC and we all went home and crashed. And I, you know, I emailed John because I, th I think I got home around 3 a.m. and said, I'm just going to be a little late tomorrow. And I woke up to like 100 new text messages and missed emails and phone calls. And I was like, well, that's unusual. I thought something bad had happened. And, you know, one of the first things I saw was a request to be on the Today Show. And I was like, what is happening here? So I finally pieced it together. And it's a little scary to suddenly lose your anonymity like that. Um, you know, one of the great things about being a speechwriter is you get to hide behind the principle, whether it's a good speech or bad speech. So that was sort of the end of that. It, and, you know, it got a little scary. There were reporters calling my parents to try to 
find any information about me. And yeah, I think they were all well-meaning, but but they just need to fill a never-ending news cycle, you know? Millions are expected to watch President Obama's State of the Union speech. And while much is often made about what the president will say, in the minutes leading up to the big speech, the country fixates on the pageantry of the event. All eyes locked on those big wooden doors, waiting for that grand entrance. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. You helped craft or, or were the chief, was the chief writer on, on a number of the stages of the union addresses. Can you tell us how important is that and how much pressure is upon you for the stage of the union speech? It's a weird speech because it's no speech requires more effort for less payoff. Um, it's an awful speech to write. It's it's one of those speeches where every speechwriter wants a chance to do one, and then once you do it, you never want to do it again. Um, it takes you know two months start to finish, not not necessarily the writing, but but gathering policy ideas, whittling them down to about seventy, then finding a way to weave them all together in kind of a cohesive narrative structure. Um, you know, Obama and I would always sit down before each one and say, "All right, let's make this one. Let's finally make this one the one that's different. Let's make it a half hour. Let's just tell a story." Let's dispense with the policy laundry list and inertia just catches you and it becomes like all the others. And we always knew that and rolled our eyes at it, but it's, it's just hard to escape. It's, but you, the, you know, the week before the speech, uh, I was always kind of a zombie just running on no sleep. You know, I, I'd like stop wearing ties and just start wearing a hoodie around the West wing. Cause it, nothing mattered anymore. Um, people would, I remember there was, there was one person one year who, sort of stalked me to try to get her idea into the speech. You know, she waited for me outside the bathroom on the day of the speech. And I was like, no, this is not happening. Um, it's just weird. And, and, <laughs> and it, uh, once, once it's finally over, you can kind of breathe this massive sigh of relief for about an hour before you realize, oh God, he's got to go give a speech somewhere tomorrow. Um, it's, it's a tremendous honor and privilege to be able to do it. And the first time I got to go on the floor of the house chamber to watch him give it was pretty extraordinary but uh you're also spending half that time trying not to fall asleep i think it was the eulogy for uh president biden's son Bo biden um in which the president quoted patrick kavna and mm -hmm. this was because you had a conversation with uh colin mccann is that true who was on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, you know, great things about the White House is anyone will answer the phone uh, when you call. I, I had quoted column um, in the president's speech in Belfast in 2013. Um, he had written, I think it was a New York Times op-ed. He had written peace. It was, it was beautiful. Peace is indeed harder than war and its constant fragility is part of its beauty. A bullet need happen only once, but for peace to work, we need to be reminded of its existence again and again and again. And I was like, I thought that was great. So I, I put that in the president's speech in Belfast. And um, I don't remember what month that was, but whenever the next St. Patrick's Day came around, Colin was a guest um, in the East Room for the evening reception. And I went up and introduced myself. And he said, I was wondering how, how on earth President Obama would quote me. And he just turned out to be a great guy. We've struck up a friendship ever since. He lives here in New York City. And you know, pre-pandemic, we saw each other every once in a while. Um, so I called Column before that eulogy and said, uh, I've exhausted my limited knowledge of Irish poetry. I need some help. A man wrote an Irish poet is original when he speaks the truth that has always been known 
to all good men. In the beginning of that speech and at the end of that speech, and uh, the end was was from Rag on Raglan Road. Colin McCann is definitely a good guy to have on the other end of a phone when you need advice like that. Our own president here in Ireland, uh, Michael D. Higgins, um, was quoted as saying in his uh, second inaugural address, words matter. How important are you know speeches um, and, and words from a president in this kind of age of disinformation? I think they matter just as much as ever. Um, you know, the president of the United States, whoever it is, is one of the most important people in the world. And what that person says has consequences and effects to it, you know. But it does matter what a president says uh, and the, the tone he or she sets. Um, and, and, and words have to matter, you know, if, if, if we did. And that's really up to us. If we decide that they don't, if we decide that anything goes, that there, there is no more common baseline of facts, um, then that's not a good thing for any of us. So it really does fall on all of us to demand better of our leaders and each other. Tell us a little bit about your experience of St. Patrick's Day in the White House. Uh, it's one of the best days of the year. Um, I was not aware that it was a thing before we got to the White House. It was, it's something, it's one of those, you know, again, when you get to the White House, you don't realize all the annual speeches a president has to give. You have to think about the, the, the power of the Irish American lobby. It's the only group that gets three speeches annually on the same day. So. I remember somebody came to us, the speechwriters, and said, hey, so it turns out the president has to give three speeches on St. Patrick's Day. Um, one, when the T-shirt comes with the, uh, the bowl of shamrocks, that's more of a kind of diplomatic business speech. One at the Congress, it's the speaker's lunch where Democrats and Republicans sit together and tell stories. And uh, the third is an evening reception at the White House. <clears throat> so uh, go to work. Um, so I, you know, I didn't just volunteer, I demanded to be able to, to do all three of them in my first year. Uh, and then the, the trick is making sure they're all different. You know, you don't want, you don't want to repeat the same anecdote or um, line of poetry or, you know, phrase. Uh, so I would just read nonstop and try to find as much as I could, as many fun anecdotes about the Irish-American relationship um, as I said before, as much poetry as I could without having to beg Colin McCann for more. Um, and then you sit down and write. And uh, I think I did seven of them. There was one year I didn't because the NCAA tournament was in town and I had tickets. So I handed that off to Kyle O'Connor, another speechwriter on our team, good Irishman. Um, but so that means over the course of eight years, there were 24 speeches on St. Patrick's Day. Then there was also his remarks in Dublin, his remarks in Belfast. Um, so we were getting close to 30. Where we did our research in the Obama White House, we actually read Yates, Kavanaugh, history books. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you met Colin McCann at the, I think the White House reception later in the evening. Um, did you attend many of those receptions? Uh, I went to all of them, <laughs> all of them except that one year I missed, uh, just because it was fun. And um, you get to meet interesting people and you know there was Guinness flowing one night a year. Um, and they would often go, they, they would often go off to, I don't know who would throw them, but there'd be other parties around town just filled with the Irish and people would sing. And I got to meet a bunch of great friends over the years. Um, I got involved in the Washington Ireland program out of it, um, which has brought me over to Ireland a couple of times. Um, 
and you just kind of develop these lasting friendships. You know, now whenever I come over and visit, you know, I have sets of friends there that I didn't eight years earlier. And that's all because of working in the White House. Um, and it was just always fun, you know, being able to write speeches celebrating Ireland and America. It's, it's, it's easier than um, when we'd have to write with other countries, you know, and because there's so much joy there. Uh, in a in a way, and there's so much joy in history that a bunch of a bunch of our other relationships with other countries we just don't have that. And you know, Ireland's there on every major. You know, we always said the National Security Council staff would always say, "All right, make sure this is in speech. Make sure this is in speech," because they're doing business, they're doing their jobs. Ireland's always there on everything, um, and it just made it a lot easier on the speechwriters. So, and I should say too. Uh, especially considering you guys and what you do, you know, whenever we got to write speeches in other countries around the world or for audiences in other countries around the world, we would often lean on the embassy staff uh, pretty heavily because, you know, say you've got to write a speech uh, for a town hall in Indonesia um, or in Prague, you know, none of us are local experts, you know, I just happen to have Irish heritage and care about it. But so we would lean heavily on the embassy staff and say, hey, what are some, uh, you know, who are some great local poets or musicians we can quote or writers, you know, what are things, what are things this country is really proud of? Uh, what should we know? What should we not say? And we'd often get these great detailed memos back from embassy staff um, that we would use to fill out, flesh out our speeches. Uh, for Ireland, it was just easier and it was more joyful. Um, and I think you can see that, you know, if, if you read President Obama's remarks in Dublin, uh, how much joy there was in there. It helped that the sun came out right before he took the stage, but, and he'd just come from Moneygall. So, it was just a feel good day. Um, and that's it. That speech in particular is one of my favorites. My name is Barack Obama of the Money Gall Obamas. And I've come home to find the apostrophe that we lost somewhere along the way. It tugs at the heartstrings a little bit. It, again, it's, you know, stories we tell ourselves, but. You know, I remember in 2005 when my buddy and I visited, we went out to the Aran Islands and when you're on the, the boat and watching Ireland pull away, you do think this is something, somebody took this same similar voyage and saw the same view uh, 250 years ago for me. Um, so then coming back and, you know, the first time you kind of see Ireland beneath the airplane windows, it's, it's the same kind of, it, it lifts the spirits a little bit. Um, and that, that entire day was, was really aimed at lifting spirits. You know, President Obama went to Moneygall, um, you know, we flew a helicopter over the countryside. It was beautiful. Go to Moneygall, go give the speech in Dublin. It, it was just, it was remarkable. And, you know, people will, uh, people kind of chuckle at the idea of, you know, all American politicians try to claim Irish heritage, certainly on St. Patrick's day, um, President Obama's was found for him. You know, there was a, a genealogist during the first campaign who was digging into his history and uncovered um, the Irish connection. And, you know, obviously his, his mother was white, his grandparents were Scotch-Irish, so he knew there was some heritage there somewhere. Uh, he just didn't know how to trace it or, or where it went to, but somebody found it, um, which set up the whole Moneygall trip. And, you know, not to get too deep here, but but look, it, you look at President Obama and he's a black man, right? And in America and everywhere, you know, we all have unconscious bias and you just assume he's a black man with a black experience and you forget 
he was raised by that white mother and by his white grandparents uh, and only met his father twice in his life. And so when he was there in Moneygall and he went to um, uh, Fulmouth Carney's house, his great, great, great grandfather, um, and walked around on those floorboards, he was, he was genuinely moved. And he, he commented on the fact that he was walking around on the same floorboards that his great, great, great grandfather walked around on. And, you know, that mattered to him just as much as anybody's, anybody else's ancestry matters to them. We might just um, move on a little bit, Cody. And I see now that you're you're writing a book, um, and and it's going to be out next year uh, on President Obama's response to the Charleston Church massacre in 2015. Could you give us a little preview about of that? Um, you know, there was this extraordinary 10-day stretch in June of 2015. You know, that began in the worst possible way with the that racist mass murder in Charleston, uh, and ended with. Um, the eulogy for those victims. But in between, um, there was also, you know, a very public debate about the Confederate flag and what it means. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled on the Affordable Care Act for the second time and on marriage equality. And it was a tense 10 days um, where, you know, kind of all these questions that we've grappled with from our founding kind of all came to a head at once. And it's really, you know, who belongs? Um, what does it mean to be an American? What are our obligations to each other? And, you know, we had all of these just swirling questions around race and bigotry and violence and inequality that, that we've grappled with from our founding. And it's, you know, they're kind of these two visions of America that came to the fore, which is, you know, is this country reserved for a few uh, or, you know, does it belong to everybody? Um, and, you know, in those 10 days, at least, all the answers to the questions were the right ones, but we also lived through this period of backlash afterwards. So, um, you know, the, the, the last four years really kind of brought that into uh, sharp focus for me. So I decided uh, now is kind of the time to sit down and write it up. I was watching that clip recently um, of, of President Obama singing Amazing Grace and you see the, the reverends jump up from their seats. Amazing. It's an incredible <laughs> moment. Amazing Grace How sweet the sound that same what are your memories of that day um <clears throat> they're all good um you know i i again i'd been up most of the night the night before uh making his changes to the eulogy because they were profound he rewrote about half of it himself um and you know we're also waiting around that morning the, the way the supreme court works is you know they they said, here's a week where we're going to decide cases. And Friday was the last day of the week and they hadn't decided marriage equality yet. So by process of elimination, we know that we're going to find out that morning whether or not um, there's a right to marriage equality in the United States Constitution. And, you know, the very real other side of that is a good chunk of the country might be told that morning, no, you're not allowed to get married in your state. Um, so there's a lot of drama that morning. <laughs> And we were hopeful that it would go the right way, but we didn't know. So, you know, everyone's kind of huddled around their TV screens at 10 a.m. sharp to see what the Supreme Court's going to do. And they rule the right way. Um, you know, again, we were chasing Ireland here. And uh, there were just scenes of joy on the television and throughout the West Wing. And, you, you know, you could hear people kind of yelping in delight. And so, you know, we'd written two sets of remarks for the president. Um, one, just in case... Uh, the court ruled the other way 
which was pretty depressing and one in case they rule the right way and he went out and gave those remarks in the rose garden and then you know within the hour we were boarding marine one uh to fly from the south lawn to air force one at andrews air force base um and he handed me back the speech he'd made some more edits and um just before getting off the helicopter he said you know if it feels right i might sing it he'd added the lyrics to amazing grace and uh you know once once you got there and you saw uh the scene at the eulogy, you knew, or at the memorial service, you knew that uh, you just knew he was going to sing. But it, it's one of those cool things about speech writing is, you know, you're one of the only people on earth who knows what the president's about to say or do. Um, so to watch that, knowing that, you know, he took this long 15 second pause to try to kind of gather up um, his singing voice, I guess. Uh, but to know that's coming. Um, when nobody else does and to anticipate the reaction is is a pretty awesome gift sometimes the president has to be the mourner in chief and we're seeing that now with with polis uh, biden how he's reacted to the you know the staggering number of covid deaths and you just described it in charleston how important a role do you think is that for a president um <clears throat> well it's very important i mean and and you saw that specifically with Biden. I mean, we, we're a year into this now, and there had been no national memorial service, no national leader who'd kind of led the country through a grieving process. And the, the day before his inauguration, Joe Biden did that. Um, and I know it was cathartic for a lot of people who'd, who'd lost somebody, or for people who'd just been trapped indoors alone for a year uh, and, and just needed to hear that people shared their grief and their pain and that somebody was going to, you know, accelerate efforts to get us out of this. Um, it was this incredible moment of catharsis over here. So that's really important. And, and someone like Joe Biden, who, whose life has been shaped by tragedy, who has mourned and grieved, uh, in, you know, ways that most of us haven't had to in a lot of ways really is the perfect president for this moment because um, he knows what people are going through and he's stocked the government with you know policy wonks who want to get it done uh, and who want to accelerate the vaccine and get us out of this ASAP so um, we've been very fortunate to to have you know a leader kind of meet the moment in that way um, you know as as Joe Biden loves to say sometimes hope and history rhyme there we go. Cody Keenan in conversation on The Diplomatic Pouch. Fascinating interview, John. Indeed. And I was uh, in College Green. I was working for the uh, embassy at the time when Obama made those remarks um, that Cody helped craft. That's right. That's so. So those I was actually in the crowd for that speech. You were too young. I was too young. I wasn't working at the embassy at the time. But so we vote witness to Cody Keenan's speech being given by Barack Obama. We have. And I mean, that day there was such ambience on the streets of Dublin and uh, it was a big G up for the country at a difficult time. Great interview and great guy. And hopefully we'll hear from Cody again in the not too distant future. His book comes out next year uh, titled Grace. We have Enda Kenny in conversation on The Diplomatic Pouch coming very soon. That was a great interview. Absolutely. So this has been The Diplomatic Pouch. For now, take care. Goodbye.